0: And I gotta doing so much this morning, I gotta make sure I got something to preach. I know I've got something to preach, I gotta make sure my Yeah, there it is. So I want you to think about two scenarios this morning. Two scenarios. First scenario is you're going through your Facebook feed and all of a sudden you come across a friend's post that shares this phenomenon called grave sucking. And you're like, what in the world is grave sucking? Well, you click on the link and you've just entered into the world of the extreme prophetic, hyper charismatic word faith movement. Where people go to the graves of dead people to supposedly suck the anointing out of their graves. And this pastor and his wife literally went to the grave of C.S. Lewis and laid on his grave to somehow suck anointing. The anointing out of C.S. Lewis's grave. Then you come across another teacher who is famous for his YouTube clips of smoking or toking the Holy Spirit. He acts like he's smoking pot or he talks about the Holy Spirit that you shoot up in your veins, almost like the Holy Spirit is a drug that makes you closer to God. And then it takes you on another link to another website and you have this this lady that's talking about astral projections and gold dust coming from the ceiling and out-of-body experiences and all of these things in the name of the Holy Spirit. That's scenario number one. And right after you get off of your computer, scenario number two happens. You get a knock on your door. And two young men in white shirts and black slacks and name tags show up at your door. And you begin to talk to them about what they believe. And they begin to share with you some strange things. And then you begin to ask them about, well, what do you think about the Holy Spirit? And they do not believe in the Holy Spirit. They they believe the Holy Spirit is some type of force or some type of fog or some type of an it. So in scenario one, you've come in contact with some of the wildest things in the hyper charismatic word faith movement that's just way out there. And in scenario number two, you've come across one of the world's largest cults that goes door to door. And both of these have a very strange understanding of the Holy Spirit. And then you stop after all this and you think to yourself, you know what? I really don't know what I believe about the Holy Spirit. We don't talk a lot about the Holy Spirit. What what am I supposed to think? And so why do I bring up this crucial topic of the Holy Spirit? because of something that happened last week in the book of Judges, and then a question that comes up often when I teach through the the book of Judges, and then just when you teach the Old Testament. So last week we looked at the central theme of Judges. The central theme of the book of Judges was the Lord disciplines His people because they've been paganized by the world around them. The, The world has paganized God's people, and so God disciplines them. And then we saw that repeated cycle of sin, the Lord raised up a spirit-empowered judge, Savior, to deliver them from bondage, from the pagan king, and from idolatry. So we're just going to read what we read last week, just two verses. So, and this, this theme will come up again in Judges, and so I thought it appropriate to bring it up this morning and do an entire sermon addressing it, because it's a question that comes up a lot in my pastoral ministry. So let's look at verse 9. Judges chapter 3, verse 9. When the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them, Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. The Spirit of the Lord was upon him, and he judged Israel. The Spirit of the Lord was upon him. So we are introduced here to the Holy Spirit coming upon an Old Testament person. And brings up a question. Did the Holy Spirit merely just come upon a person? Or did the Holy Spirit actually regenerate, cause an Old Testament person to be born again? And did in fact the Holy Spirit come and indwell and live inside of Old Testament believers? So I need you to hang with me this morning because today's sermon is going to be highly theological, highly biblical, and we're going to talk a lot about some things that maybe you've never heard of before, but I think it's important because this is a topic that comes up a lot, and then at the end of the sermon, we're going to talk about how it's it's important to us. So it, it is an important issue to talk about because there are two questions that often come up when I teach the Old Testament, invariably, these two questions come up. Here's the first question. How were the Old Testament saints saved? Were they saved the way we are today? Are there two methods of salvation, one for the Old Testament one for the New Testament? How were they saved, if you will? That's the first question we're going to answer today. And then the second's a follow-up question, and it's related to the role of the Holy Spirit. So the second question is, how did the Holy Spirit work in the Old Testament generally, and then more specifically, in what way did he operate on individual Old Testament believers? Did the Holy Spirit just show up in the New Testament? Well, no, because it says right here in Judges, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of the Lord, came upon Othniel, the judge. So I'm going to answer the first question by introducing to you a topic that you've probably heard before, but I'm going to introduce it again. Theologically, it's called the covenant of grace. The covenant of grace. And the covenant of grace was first introduced to Adam and Eve when they sinned in the garden. So I want you to turn all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. So turn in your Bible to Genesis 3. This is right after Adam and Eve have sinned the serpent deceived them they hide themselves because they're guilty adam blames eve and eve blames the devil they blame each other and then the lord makes an announcement in genesis 3:15 okay what we're going to see in genesis 3:15 is the first announcement of the gospel in the entire bible this is the announcement of the covenant of grace Genesis 3.15. So let's read it together. This is God speaking. I will put enmity between you and the woman, he's talking to the serpent here, and between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now what is going on here? What is this all about? Well, I want you to notice, first of all, that God doesn't ask Adam and Eve to devise a plan to somehow save themselves. Adam and Eve, you got yourself in this mess. Figure out how to get out of it. No, God acts in sovereign mercy to bring about grace. Now, let's just stop for a moment because at this moment, God could have told Adam and Eve, we're done. You guys disobeyed. I'm sending you straight to hell. We are done with this whole human race thing. You are evil sinners. We are done. God is not obligated to save them. God does not have to do anything but punish them because they've sinned. He could have very well killed Adam and Eve right there on the spot and sent them to hell. But he does not. He makes a promise. He says there's going to come a man, a descendant, the seed of a woman, not an animal, Not an angel, but a man will descend from a woman. And not an ordinary man, but a man who's fully God and fully man, a divine man. And we know that this is a promise of Jesus. Jesus is going to be the promised seed of the woman that will come, leave the glories of heaven. And what does it say there? Satan's going to bruise the heel of Jesus. Satan's going to be nipping at the heel of Jesus. Satan's going to attack. But what's Jesus going to do? He's going to crush the head of the serpent. And that's a metaphorical way of saying that this Messiah who is promised to come is going to die an excruciating death. Not just any ordinary death, but a death by crucifixion. A substitutionary death. And it's pictured just a few verses later. So just look at verse 21. So right after God announces that this this offspring of a woman, this man, is going to come and crush Satan, this is a prophecy about Jesus. Verse 21. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Now it doesn't come right out and say it, but God killed an animal. God killed an animal instead of Adam and Eve and God covered Adam and Eve with the skins of that animal, thus picturing a sacrificial atonement that needed to happen to cover sin. Picturing what Jesus would one day do by coming and dying on the cross. So Genesis 3.15 has historically been called the announcement of the covenant of grace. The announcement that God would bring grace to to sinners through Jesus Christ. Now the covenant of grace is best articulated in our statement of faith. So I'm going to put part of our statement of faith up on the screen so that you can see that this has been codified for the past 400 years in what we believe as Reformed Baptists. Since humanity brought itself under the curse of the law by its fall, it pleased the Lord to make a covenant of grace. This covenant is revealed in the gospel. It was revealed first to Adam, that's what we just saw, in the promise of salvation through the seed of the woman. After that, it was revealed step by step until the full revelation of it was completed in the New Testament. A covenant of grace was announced to Adam. Now, what's a covenant? A covenant is a promise. It's a binding promise that God says, I am making a binding promise with my people that I'm going to save them by grace. I'm making a promise, and it was announced to Adam, and then, as the confession says, it was revealed step by step. So all of the Old Testament are these types and shadows, step by step. You see it in the sacrificial system. You see it in the promises made to Abraham. You see it in the promises made to David. So step by step in the Old Testament, it's unfolding until it finally comes to Christ, who is the seed of the woman. And when Christ dies on the cross, he institutes the new covenant in his blood, thus fully completing the covenant of grace that was promised. So here's the answer. Based upon this promise made to Adam, from the very beginning, Old Testament believers were saved the same way we are. They were saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, as promised in Genesis 3.15. And by faith, the Old Testament believers trusted in that promise. They did not earn acceptance with God by works. Now, I want you to again listen to our statement of faith on the death of Christ, because you may be asking, well, Jesus didn't die until the New Testament. How can his death cover the sins of Old Testament people? Listen to our statement of faith on the death of Christ. Again, it'll be on the screen. The virtue, efficacy, and benefit of Christ's death was imparted to the elect in every age since the beginning of the world in and by those promises, types, and sacrifice that revealed him and pointed to him as the seed that would bruise the serpent's head and the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. What this means is that the death of Christ was effective all the way back to Adam. In other words, his death was retroactive for Old Testament believers. They were looking forward to the promise of Jesus dying on the cross. We're just simply looking backwards to what he had already accomplished. So, Genesis 3.15 is the announcement of the covenant of grace that God, by his grace alone, would send Jesus as the full, fully God, fully man, to die on the cross for our sins. And the Old Testament saints believed that promise, and they were saved by that promise, and it was by grace alone through faith alone. The sacrificial system With all its types and shadows and all the blood of goats and bulls, you you go back and and you read the, the book of Hebrews, it did not permanently forgive their sins. It only pictured or pointed forward to what Christ would accomplish on the cross. So, Old Testament believers were saved by grace in that promise of a coming Savior who died on the cross for their sins, and it was retroactive because they were looking forward to what Jesus would accomplish. So you can say it this way. Old Testament believers were saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. How are we saved? By grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. Is there any difference? No, there's not. It's only a difference of timing. They were looking forward to what Christ would do. We're looking back, but the promise was made in Genesis 3.15. That promise was made that covenant was made with God's people in Genesis 3:15 and it was revealed all the way through the Old Testament culminating in the death of Christ. So that's the first question. Second question we're spending most of our time this morning. What is the role of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament? And more specifically, did Old Testament believers were they regenerated and indwelt by the Holy Spirit? So we could go into a lot. We could go a lot of directions this morning, but for the sake of time, I don't want. I, 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 I kind of joked on Facebook. I said, "You get an extra hour of sleep. I get an extra hour to preach." So that's just the way it works this morning. No, I'm just joking. There are three overarching ways in which the Holy Spirit is revealed in the Old Testament and how He operates. I'm going to briefly spend time on the first two, but then predominantly on the third. First, and this is very interesting, the Holy Spirit was active in creation. Do you realize that he shows up on the very, the very second verse in the Bible? Genesis 1-2. The earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. The Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. We often think of God the Father being the one that created. Yes, he did. Genesis... John says that Jesus was there at creation. The Holy Spirit was there at creation. All three persons of the Trinity were active in creation, but specifically the Holy Spirit. Okay, so he's, he's there on the very second verse in the Bible. Okay, second, the Holy Spirit empowered or anointed specific people to service. This is very interesting. So when they were going to build the tabernacle, the Holy Spirit empowered artisans and craftsmen, and, and artists, and, and construction workers. Exodus 31, 1-4. through 4, The Lord said to Moses, See, I've called by name Basilel, the son of Uri. Okay, so ladies that are thinking about having children, maybe you should name your kid Basilel, the son of Uri. Son of Hur, from the tribe of Judah. I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship, to devise artistic designs, to work in gold, silver, and bronze. He's been empowered by the Spirit to do artistic work. Okay, what about kings? For Samuel sixteen thirteen, Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of the brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. The Lord rushed upon David to empower him to anoint him to be king. We've just seen in Judges three, Othniel. The Spirit of the Lord was upon him. We'll find out Gideon and all these other judges, the Spirit of the Lord was upon them. Well, what about prophets? Second Kings 2.9, when they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, ask what I shall do for you before I am taken from you. And Elisha said, please let there be a double portion of your spirit on me. Somehow there was this, the Spirit was upon Elijah. Elisha won a double portion, and then Micah, when he's prophesying, Micah 3.8, but as for me, I am filled with power with the Spirit of the Lord and with justice and might to declare to Jacob his transgressions and to Israel his sins. So Micah is empowered by the Holy Spirit as a prophet to go speak. So the Holy Spirit came upon prophets, kings, artisans to empower them for specific service. Now, that's the, th- those are like special, special anointed people, kings priests? What about your average Joe Israelite? Here's the third question. And this is an assertion that I'm making. The Holy Spirit did regenerate and indwell Old Testament believers. Now, I don't want to be dogmatic on this, and here's why. There are six different views in church history on how to land on this subject. So there's a lot of Different different views. This is where I have landed. You may not land where I'm landing, but as your pastor, I want to show you how I got there, why I believe this, and I want to build a biblical case for you to see it biblically and theologically, why I believe that Old Testament believers were not only regenerated by the Holy Spirit, but indwelt by the Holy Spirit. So. Let's think about some biblical truths that are true for all people, regardless of what testament you live in. This is just true of, of human nature. Okay? So here's the first biblical truth. All people, hopefully we can agree upon this, all people are born spiritually dead due to the fall. All people. There's, there's nobody that's not born spiritually dead. Because of Adam and Eve's sin, all of us are born spiritually dead due to the fall. Genesis 6, 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That's pretty bad. That's why there was the flood. Ecclesiastes 7, verse 20. Surely there's not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. You were dead. In the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived, in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Every single person enters this world spiritually dead, regardless of what testament you were born in, because of Adam. Okay, second, the Holy Spirit sovereignly causes a spiritually dead person to come alive and have faith in Christ. In order for you to have faith in Christ, in order for you to be a Christian, you have to be made alive. You have to go from death to life. Who does that? The Holy Spirit does that. John 3, 7-8. through Jesus is talking to Nicodemus. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who's born of the Spirit. If you're born of the Spirit, that means you've been made alive. The Spirit has blown in your heart to give you new life. Jesus would later on in John six sixty three say, It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are Spirit and life. The Spirit has got to give you new life. This was read to begin our worship service. It doesn't necessarily mention the Holy Spirit, but the concept is there. Ephesians 2, 4, and 5. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace you've been saved. So two basic truths. Every single person is born spiritually dead. And if you're ever going to have faith in Christ, you've got to be made spiritually alive. Okay, So here's the third implication. If those first two truths are valid for all people, then for the Old Testament people to hear, to believe, and to respond in faith to the Lord, the Spirit must also grant them the supernatural ability to do so. If they were spiritually dead and they had to be made alive in order to obey God or hear God or follow God, then something supernatural had to happen to them as well. Now, it's not necessarily called regeneration in the Old Testament, but there is some Old Testament wording that speaks about God doing this work in the hearts of Old Testament believers. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. Okay, did you notice the order there? What has to happen to you before you'll love God? What has to happen to you before you'll follow God with all your heart? What had to happen to an Old Testament Israelite in order for them to love God? God had to circumcise their heart. God had to do a work in their heart. God had to do something internally in their heart, giving them the ability, the supernatural ability to follow the Lord that they could love Him and follow Him. So the implication is this. An Old Testament Israelite could not serve the Lord his God with all of his heart without God doing that work in the depths of the heart. And then fourth, we see this. Old Testament believers did have faith in the promised Messiah, and they were faithful in obedience. Now, I didn't say they were perfect and they never failed, but they had faith. They had faith in Genesis 3.15 and a promised Messiah. They did not know it was Jesus from Nazareth, born of a carpenter, but they had faith in the promised Messiah. And we see this all throughout the Old Testament. So let's talk about Noah. Noah. Hebrews 11, 7. By faith Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of righteousness that comes by faith. In reverent fear. How did, how did Noah have reverent fear to to build the ark unless God was working in him to have that reverent fear. What about Abraham? Genesis fifteen, five through six. He brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be, and he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Abraham believed the Lord, believed that promise. What about Joseph? Genesis forty one, thirty-eight. And Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? In whom is the Spirit of God? Joseph had the Spirit of God. It was evident. What about Moses? Hebrews 11, 24-26, By faith Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. How could Moses have done all that? How could Moses have, have said no to sin and the fleeting pleasures of sin without some type of supernatural ability to do so? Okay, what about the 70 elders? Numbers eleven twenty five. Then the Lord came down in a cloud and spoke to him and took some of the Spirit that was on him, that's Moses, and put it on the 70 elders. And as soon as the Spirit rested on them, they prophesied, but they did not continue doing it. So there was a sense in which the 70 elders had the Spirit. Joshua, Numbers 27, 18. So the Lord said to Moses, Take Joshua the son of Nun, a man in whom is the Spirit, and lay your hand on him. Joseph and Joshua both said it was a man in whom was the Spirit. The Spirit was in them. Okay, now I'm going to give three people that are not Old Testament, but they're hinge people that are before the birth of Christ. Okay, John the Baptist. Luke 1:15. For he will be great before the Lord. He must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. Before he's even born, John the Baptist is going to have the Holy Spirit in him. Elizabeth. Luke 1.44, and when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Zechariah, Luke 1.67, and his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied. Now, these are examples of individual believers who either had faith or had the Holy Spirit before the birth of Christ. Either it explicitly says the Holy Spirit was in them, or it says they believed. So my conclusion is, therefore, Old Testament saints were regenerated and indwelt by the Holy Spirit just as we are today. So let me ask you a question. Can anybody have faith outside of trust in Christ? No. These Old Testament believers believed in the promise of the, old, the, promise of the coming Messiah in the Old Testament. So they're saved the same way we are. So let me ask you a second question. If they're saved the same way we are by faith, can you have faith in Jesus without the Holy Spirit? No, you cannot. Romans 8 9 says this, You, however, are not in the flesh but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. If you don't have the Holy Spirit, you don't belong to God. So let me ask you a question, and then you may come up with an answer. There's two answers that you can come up with. How could Old Testament believers have faith, obey, pray, worship, respond positively without the Holy Spirit? So let me say, how could they do all these things without the Holy Spirit? Well, you've got two answers, If if you stop and think about it. How could they do these things without the Holy Spirit? So here's answer number one. They could do spiritual good without the Holy Spirit, but we really don't know how they did it. But, are they still sinful? Could the law do anything in them to move them to do that? Let me ask you this question. Did an Old Testament believer struggle with Galatians 5, 16-17? I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Did an Old Testament Israelite ever battle the flesh? No, they're not human like we are. They they were under a different category. They may not have had categories that Paul talked about, like the flesh and the Spirit, but how could they walk in holiness... Without the Holy Spirit, you'd have to argue that they were able to do it, but we really don't know how, even though they had the sinful nature in them. Okay, a second answer, which may be a little better, the Holy Spirit came upon them and gave them power to do that, but He did not live in them continually. It was intermittent. He came, He went, He came, He went. It was never a permanent indwelling. But how could they remain faithful? if the Holy Spirit came and went and came and went and didn't come and live inside them. So I want to show you two passages from David in the Psalms that lead me to believe that the Holy Spirit does a work internally in believers to indwell them, to regenerate them, to work deep in the recesses of the heart. And one you're probably very familiar with. After David commits adultery with Bathsheba, and has her husband Uriah killed, and Nathan the prophet comes and confronts him in his sin. David has that psalm of confession, Psalm 51. And listen to what David is asking in Psalm 51, 10 through 11. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Listen to the words that David's using there. Create something in me. Renew something in me. And the implication is it's the Holy Spirit that's doing this work in him. This renewal, this cleansing, this sense of being connected to God, it's related to the role of the Holy Spirit in his life. Now, we need to be careful here. This does not mean, hear me very carefully, This does not mean the Holy Spirit can be taken away from true believers. That's not what David's praying here. David's not saying, the Holy Spirit's living in me and he's going to leave me. What he's saying is, and you've probably experienced this before, when you've sinned, there's a sense of anxiety. There's a feeling of separation. There's that sense that God's presence distance. So what David here is doing is he's praying for a renewed sense or a renewed feeling or a renewed understanding of God's presence in his life. He wants God's continuous blessing. It's not like the Holy Spirit's left him. He just wants to feel that connection to God that he's lost, not the relationship, but that connection to God that he's lost because he has sinned. John Calvin comments on this verse by saying this. He says, it's natural that the saints, when they have fallen into sin, should feel anxiety upon this point. But it is their duty to hold fast the truth that grace is the incorruptible seed of God, which can never perish in any heart where it is deposited. If God's put grace in your heart through the Holy Spirit, it can never leave you. It's an awareness of God's presence, but it's not a leaving of God's presence. So how in the world could David fight temptation the next time around? Without the Holy Spirit giving him the strength to be able to fight temptation. That's what he's asking. I've sinned majorly. I need the renewal of the Holy Spirit. I need the strength of the Holy Spirit. I need the power of the Holy Spirit so I can walk in holiness and not do this again. Okay, another song from David. Psalm 143.10 Teach me to do your will, for you are my God. Let your good spirit lead me on level ground. Let your spirit lead me on level ground. So how's David to live the the Christian life as an Old Testament saint? How's David to walk in holiness? How's David to obey? How's David to do God's will? The Holy Spirit will lead him. Well, how does the Holy Spirit lead him? through that internal power and grace given to Him. So, here's the point. You and I need the power of the Holy Spirit to walk in holiness. Old Testament believers needed the power of the Holy Spirit to walk in holiness. We have the same struggles they did. He's the same spirit back then as He is today. He provides the strength to walk in holiness. God's ways. Now, some of you may be saying, Object, Pastor Sean, I object. What about Pentecost? Isn't that when the Holy Spirit came? Isn't that when the Holy Spirit was poured out? Isn't that when the Holy Spirit came and dwelt indwelt? And so so there are some people, there are some groups that would say there is a sharp distinction between Old Testament and New Testament. Holy Spirit was not present in the Old Testament. Old Testament believers weren't saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. They were saved by the law. It wasn't until Pentecost when the Holy Spirit was poured out. Then, and only then, is when from that point forward, people were regenerated and indwelt by the Holy Spirit, but never before. And my argument would be this. It cannot mean that based upon what we've seen about the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. Whatever you think about Pentecost, you at least have to deal with these passages I've shared with you this morning that the Holy Spirit was at work in people's lives in the Old Testament. It's just a matter of to what extent are you going to hold to that the Holy Spirit was active. But I want you to think about Pentecost for a moment. Do things to be aware of on the day of Pentecost to kind of lead up to that. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit was primarily working among the Israelites. Now, there were a few Gentile exceptions. You think of Ruth, you think of Rahab, you think of some, some Gentiles that, were, that came in, but predominantly, these were Israelites that, that God was working with in the Old Testament. And number two, the Old Testament was a time of preparation of pointing forward to Christ. So it was a a foretaste, a looking forward to what God would do with not just the Israelites, but with Gentiles, bringing the fullness of the Gentiles in. So what happened at Pentecost? This is my view. You may disagree with me. I don't think Pentecost signaled a new day of the Spirit's indwelling. I think the Spirit had always regenerated and dwelt. What I think Pentecost is doing is It's now constituting the official recognized church of baptized believers. Think about it this way In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit was working internally in the the Old Testament saints. He was regenerating, He was indwelling them, but Christ hadn't come yet. When Christ came and died on the cross, He completed the covenant of grace, He went back up to heaven, and who did He send in His place? The Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ. And so now, in the fullness of its sense, Jesus is the bride. I mean, Jesus is the groom. We are the bride. We can now be connected to him. And who connects us? The Holy Spirit. And so Pentecost is not so much of a new move of the Spirit. It's just in a different way because now Christ has come, and he's risen, and he's ascended. And so it's not that the Holy Spirit's doing things necessarily new. It's just a different economy based upon the completed work of Christ and it's broader in that it's now including Gentiles and just not specifically Jews. Now, that was a great lesson on the Holy Spirit's work in the Old Testament, Pastor Sean. Who cares? Why is it important to you? Well, here's why it's important to you. Without the Holy Spirit, you would never experience all the blessings of salvation. You would not be a Christian today unless the Holy Spirit regenerated you and caused you to be born again. You would not be a Christian today unless the Holy Spirit came and indwelt you and lived inside of you. And you know what the Holy Spirit does? Because He indwells us and He regenerates us. He gives us intimate fellowship with Jesus. He brings us into communion with Jesus. He unites us to Christ. And you know where it's most powerfully, visibly demonstrated? I don't know if you thought about this before, in the Lord's Supper. In the Lord's Supper. Let me just ask, boys and girls, let me ask you a question Where's Jesus right now? Boys and girls, where's Jesus right now? Or or adults. He's where? Uh, He's in heaven. Thank you. Jesus, I'm hearing all this murmuring. Jesus is in heaven. In his exalted, resurrected body at the right hand of the Father. Jesus is in heaven. Is Jesus here with us in the Lord's Supper? Yes. How? How? If he's in heaven and he's not here, how's Jesus here? Here's the answer the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit connects us with the risen Christ so that when we take the Lord's Supper, we are vitally fellowshipping with Jesus. Even though he's not here, he's in heaven. The Holy Spirit ties our hearts to Jesus in the Lord's Supper. And Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 10 16 through 17. Listen to what Paul says, and these are present tense verbs. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there's one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of one bread. Paul says it's a participation or a sharing or a communion. Why do we call it, we call it Lord's Supper, but why do we call it communion? We call it communion because commune means to worship or to to, to commune or to have fellowship with. So here's the beauty of the Lord's Supper. While Jesus is not physically here, he's in heaven, we can worship our resurrected Christ in the elements of the bread and the wine. They're not magical, they don't become the body and blood of Christ, but somehow spiritually... When we take communion, the Holy Spirit in our hearts in the moment is uniting us with Jesus in a very special and powerful way so that we can have an experience of communion with Jesus like nothing else. There's something very special about the Lord's Supper. In that moment that you're taking the bread and drinking the cup, Spiritually speaking, you're receiving nourishment that comes directly from the Holy Spirit to your soul, giving it to us from Christ. So let me just say it this way. The Holy Spirit is indispensable. What does that mean? You can't live without Him. He's our only source of salvation. He unites us to Christ. He lives inside of you. He empowers you, He cleanses you, He grows you in holiness, He gives you the strength to live the Christian life, and most importantly, He glorifies Jesus by pointing you to the Savior. So as we take communion this morning, it is totally appropriate, yes, to fix our eyes on Jesus, but to also give praise and thanks to the Holy Spirit for His work in our lives in uniting us to Christ. Think about a floodlight. If you're to walk on the side of the building, what's the purpose of a floodlight? To light the path, right? You don't look at the floodlight. What do you look at? The path. But you can't see the path unless the floodlight's there in the dark, right? Especially on a winter's night. You don't want to slip and fall. So a floodlight is crucial. A floodlight shines so that you can see your way. The Holy Spirit's the floodlight. He's crucial. He's important. But His job is to point the way to Jesus so that we see Christ. So the Holy Spirit oftentimes says, don't look at me, look at Jesus. I'm vitally important, but my goal is to point you to Jesus. And so in the Lord's Supper, the Holy Spirit points us to Jesus. He unites our hearts to Jesus so that we can commune with Jesus. And the Holy Spirit gives us that deep sense of fellowship and union with Christ like no other experience we can experience as God's people in the taking of communion. So let me ask you to bow your heads this morning as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper together. And would you praise the Lord for giving you the Spirit of the living God to be in your life. Come before you this morning in the celebration of the Lord's Supper. We are thankful that you sent Jesus to be the propitiation for our sins. To take the wrath and justice that we deserved. Jesus, we're thankful that you fully paid for our sins in your body on the cross. That you victoriously rose again and that you're ruling and reigning at the right hand of the Father in heaven right now. And Holy Spirit, thank you that you've regenerated us, you've caused us to be born again, you're living inside of us, you're empowering us, you're producing your fruit in our lives, you're guiding us, you're leading us, you're strengthening us, you're cleansing us. And in these moments as we take the Lord's Supper, you're uniting our hearts to Jesus. So Holy Spirit, help us to see just how vitally important your role is in our life. That without you, Spirit of the living God, we would not be saved, we would not have salvation, we would not experience any of the blessings of salvation. So, as we sang earlier, praise Father, praise the Son, praise the Spirit, three and one. Hallelujah, hallelujah, all creatures of our God and King.